Welcome to the podcast of Hope Community Church. Hope exists to be a church where people can experience the transformative power of the gospel in the context of grace-centered community. We strive to be real people looking to the real Jesus for real change that can have redemptive impact among individuals, local communities, our city, and the world. For more information, visit hopecommunity.com. Well, hey, good morning. It's uh, good to see you. If we haven't met before, my name's Aaron Engel, and I uh, have the privilege of serving as the lead site pastor here at Hope Community Church uh, South End. And if you're just joining us today, maybe for the first time, um, it's our regular practice as we gather together, not only to uh, sing these songs, to uh, pray together, to talk about what's going on in the life of our church, but uh, to open up God's word and to study it together. And it's our regular a diet as we do that to work through books of the Bible from start to finish. And that's currently what we're doing right now. We're in a, a sermon series looking at the Gospel of Mark, one of the uh, books we have in the New Testament that tells us about the life of Jesus when he was here on earth. And so we started this series back in September and are continuing it uh, here this spring. And today you can find the passage that we're going to be looking at printing your bulletin. We're going to be in Mark chapter 6, looking at verses 1 through 13. And in this sermon series, we're looking at Jesus Christ as our one true king. And uh, so that's where we're going to look at him, how we're going to look at him again today as we look at this passage. So I'd invite you to listen as I read it for us, and then I'll pray and we'll look at it more closely together. So hear now God's word to us today. Jesus went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you do call us as we just sang together to come as we are. And uh, it's hard to do that. It takes a lot of um, faith to believe that that's really the way you want us to come to you. Uh, it takes a lot of courage to do that. And we need your help to be able to take off our masks, to be able to open ourselves up and really come before you um, as we truly are with all of 
our sin and shame and brokenness and all the, the difficult things uh, we're facing. We ask that you do that. You give us the ability even now to come and be here and open ourselves up uh, to what you have for us this morning. And we pray that you'd meet us. Um, Lord, I pray that you'd meet those of us who are really struggling today. Um, Lord, specifically, I want to lift up uh, the Dyer family as Allie continues to uh, battle cancer. Lord, we pray uh, for healing. We pray for comfort. We pray for perseverance. Pray for Bob and Connus, uh, especially in the midst of it, and all their family and, and all of us who love them and love her so much. And, and Lord, we know there are many other things going on with all of us. Um, we pray that you'd meet us where we are. And uh, we thank you that that is what you promised to do. And so we ask now that um, by the power of your spirit, um, you'd meet us as we come and look at this passage more closely together. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, going home can be a tricky thing. Uh, going home to see your family and your friends, going home to the people you grew up with and the places you grew up around. Uh, as many of us, I'm sure, experienced over the past few weeks when we went home for Christmas, uh, going home can be great to be with all these familiar people and be in all these familiar places, but it can also be tricky because some interesting things tend to happen when you go home to the house you grew up in um, now as an adult. Uh, number one, uh, you tend to revert back to old patterns and ways of living. You start to do things and act in ways you used to when you were a kid. Uh, Sarah and I used to notice this, or, or we started to notice this uh, for me several years ago when I would go home. Uh, of course, in our home, our new home together as a married couple, I would help out with chores around the house, right? I'd do dishes and clean up after meals. Uh, but when we would go home to my childhood home, I wouldn't do anything. And so after we'd eat dinner, uh, I'd go, me and my brother would go and start watching TV or a game or, or just hanging out and do something else. And my mom would clean up uh, most of it, probably a pretty classic one. But finally, after recognizing this, Sarah was finally like, hey, you're not 12 years old anymore, right? Like you, you need to help out. And so I tried to do that more now. So, so number one, you can revert back, right? Uh, but also number two, the people around you can revert back, especially to the way they see you. Your parents, your siblings, your friends, they can go back to where they see only you th through old, they only see you through old lenses. They don't see you as the you you are now, today, the ways you've grown and developed and changed. Instead, they see you only as the you you were back then. And as a result, sometimes trips home can be hard. Even mixed in with the good, there can be difficulty. And sometimes you can leave these trips feeling frustrated, feeling misunderstood, sometimes even feeling rejected. Well, as we come to our, our passage today, we see this same kind of thing happening to Jesus, the one true king we're looking at in this series. As he and his disciples have been out doing their thing, doing ministry all throughout the region, he decides it's time to go home to his hometown, to Nazareth, to the place he grew up in, to see the people he grew up with. And as he does, he's rejected. Instead of seeing who he is, the people he has grown up around, they can't get out of the past. They can't stop seeing Jesus as the boy and as the young man that they knew growing up in this town 
for so many years. And so verse three of our passage tells us they took offense at him. And the Greek word for offense that you see here is the word skandalizo, which is the word that gives us our word scandalize, which means to be offended. It means to have something get in your way and, and cause you to stumble. And there's something really important for us here in this offense they take, in their stumbling over Jesus, in their being scandalized by him. There's a great challenge for us, a really important challenge, and there's a great invitation. And so what we're gonna do together in our time this morning is we're gonna focus on the scandal of Jesus. We see here as he goes back to his hometown, and we're gonna think about what that means for our life today, especially as we head together into a new year. And to do that, we're gonna ask three questions. First, what is the scandal? So what is it the people here in Nazareth are so scandalized by? Then second, uh, why does that scandalize us? And then third, what happens when you embrace the scandal and then begin to live out of it? And so let's look at our first question. Let's start with this. What is the scandal? And as we saw last week, when Jeff led us through the story in the second half of chapter five, Jesus just finished healing a woman who'd been sick with a bleeding condition for 12 years. Then after that, he raised a 12-year-old girl, the daughter of Jairus, one of the rulers of the synagogue, up from the dead. And this capped off a string of miraculous healings and, and demonstrations of his power. And now verse one tells us that after this, he went away from there and came to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And as I mentioned, this is Nazareth. Mark doesn't name it, but we know this is where Jesus grew up. And apparently he gets a, a warm reception at first when he comes into the town because the text tells us he's invited to go and, and teach in the synagogue. And as he does, we see what it is about him that's so scandalizing to everyone. And what is it? Well, like always happens when Jesus starts teaching, they recognize right away, this is different. There's something about it. There, there's a power, there's an authority. He, his teaching isn't like the, the normal people who come in here and, and, and teach. I've been reading Daniel James Brown's book, The Boys in the Boat, about the University of Washington crew team that won the Olympic gold medal in 1936, and a movie just came out about this over Christmas, uh, directed by George Clooney. But when the Washington coach, Al Ulbrichsen, first saw this crop of incoming freshmen who had gone to make up a lot of the boat that would win the gold medal, he noticed right away that something was different about them. Something was special. As he saw them, he, it was just like the way they carried themselves, their height, their length, how, how strong they appeared to be. And in a word, this is what he told the local sports writer who was there taking it in that day. And I didn't know this, but apparently uh, back in the day, crew was like as popular as like football or baseball. And so writers covered it that way. But he told him, essentially, I think we've got something special here. And as the next few years would prove, he was right as they would eventually go on to defeat the German team in Berlin with a disgusted Adolf Hitler looking on. But that, that's the kind of thing that they notice here in Nazareth. And when Jesus starts to teach, they're like, this is different. This is special. And so verse two tells us that they were astonished. It tells us on the Sabbath day, he began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were astonished. However, 
instead of being astonished by that and staying with it and letting it lead them to wonder uh, who, he might, who this man might be and, and ask the question, like, is this him? Him? Is this the Messiah? Instead of that, they start asking other kinds of questions, questions like we see in verse 2 when they ask, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. So they recognize the wisdom, the mighty works he's done. They can feel the greatness in their presence, but what they can't get over is how it's this guy that has it. Because after all, this is the carpenter. And being a carpenter wasn't a bad job by any means at the time, but it also wasn't a prestigious one either. It was, it was a very normal job. And this is Mary's son. And commentators go back and forth about whether this is meant to be a derogatory name or not, but normally at the time you would be identified by your father's name, not your mother's. And so possibly this is a jab at the fact that Joseph wasn't Jesus's biological dad. And the gossip and questioning that surely came with that as they lived and grew up in this small community. And don't we know his brothers and sisters? Like we know his family, we know him. And here's the point. They can't believe the ordinariness of Jesus. That's what scandalizes them. How normal he is, how, how ordinary he is. He doesn't have any credentials. He hasn't trained under a famous rabbi. He, he hasn't received any formal theological training. He doesn't have an impressive background. He didn't even stand out in this tiny town growing up with us. He's just Jesus, the carpenter, Mary's son. We know his brothers and sisters. His ordinariness is what scandalizes us. That God would, would come to us this way not blowing us away with good looks, worldly power and accomplishments, not coming as an inspirational conquering hero, at least in his first coming, his second coming's a different story, but coming to us as a normal human being, as one who's like us in every way, except for sin, as the author of Hebrews tells us, as one who comes to us as a lowly, regular carpenter. This is the scandal. It's what causes the people of Nazareth to fail to have faith in Jesus. And it what, it's what causes Jesus to be astonished himself and ultimately to leave his hometown and to go on to continue to preach the good news in other places. Verse, verse six tells us that he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. It's a tragic story. And it's meant to be a warning to show you and me the same kind of thing can happen to us. And so second, we need to ask why? Why does this scandalize us so much? Why can Jesus's ordinariness be such a problem for us? Well, to put it simply, the answer is we don't like ordinary. We like extraordinary. We wanna fill our life with extraordinary people and extraordinary experiences. We wanna be extraordinary ourselves. I mean, isn't that what can be it? the root of so much of our frantic New Year's resolution making? 
I know it is for me. I need to put all these habits in my life so I can improve and not be so ordinary because that's not good enough. It's not good enough for me to be a normal husband and dad, a normal pastor, uh, even like a normal gym member. Like being exceptional, standing out, it's just such a huge part of the culture we live in. Dr. Gavin Ortland, not to be confused with his brother, Dane Ortland, that we quote all the time here at Hope, but he put out a, a recent book on humility called Humility, the Joy of Self-Forgetfulness. And in it, he shares an anecdote from the famous musical conductor, Leonard Bernstein. And Leonard Bernstein was once asked, what's the, what's the hardest musical instrument to learn? And here's how he responded, quote, second fiddle. I can get plenty of first violinists, but to find someone who can play second fiddle with enthusiasm, that's a problem. And if we have no second fiddle, we have no harmony. See, that's the human heart. Yeah, I can play first violin, sign me up for that. But second fiddle, a more ordinary background, supporting role, I'm good. And the culture we live in and that so many of us grew up in only amplifies this. And so naturally we want a God who fits into it. We want a God who comes into our life and does extraordinary things, who does mighty works, mighty works that strengthen us and motivate us so that we'll have faith in him so that we can go and accomplish all of our dreams and, and maybe do some good things for him along the way. And no doubt Jesus can and does do mighty works. And, and verse five of our passage doesn't mean Jesus can't do great things, like he's literally not able to do them until we put our faith in him. It means that he just normally doesn't do them when we don't have faith. He is an extraordinary God who does extraordinary things. But when he came to earth in the, carnate, in the incarnation, he came in a very ordinary way, a second fiddle kind of way. And there are two truths we learn here that, as we look at this, that, that scandalize us. And the first one is this, it teaches us our ordinariness is good. Our ordinariness is good. It teaches us God likes our ordinariness. He likes ordinary. He likes how ordinary I am. He likes how ordinary you are. It teaches us the idea we have that we have to spend our entire lives working so hard to become more than ordinary is a lie. It's not true. We don't have to impress God. We don't have to spend our whole life trying to make something great of ourselves, at least in terms of how the world evaluates greatness. And someone told me once when I was struggling with this, um, that, that the way you know how much God likes ordinary people is that he made so many of us, <laughs> right? And that was really helpful for me. But I was thinking about it even more the way we know is when God sent his own son to come in the world, he sent him as a very ordinary person. And, and if you're at all like me, this causes your anxiety to spike a little bit. I can feel it as I'm talking about this because like, who am I and, and what is my life about? If this, is, if this is true, I've gotten so used to living like this is the point of my life, but it also brings so much rest to your heart to think, oh, it doesn't have to be the point. Like I don't have to work so hard to try to be this and do this. Like our ordinariness is good. But the even more scandalizing truth is the second truth this teaches us. And it's this, that it teaches us what we really need isn't someone to motivate us. What we really need isn't someone to come 
and inspire us, but what we really need is someone to save us. And this is the main reason Jesus came in such an ordinary way. The reason he did become like us in every way except for our sin. It's why he was born as a baby. It's why he grew up. It's why he went through every normal stage of human growth and development. It's why he grew up in a hometown and was in relationships with people and worked an ordinary job. It's why he did everything he did because he came to live the ordinary life God made us to live, except to do it perfectly, except to do it as the faithful one, to do it full of perfect love for God and for those around him, to live as God intends for us to live, but not to show us the way and merely be an example of what it looks like so we can try our best to do it, but to do it for us in our place as our substitute to do what we can never do because of our sin and not just to live in our place, but to die in it too, to live the perfect, ordinary, faithful human life and to die the death you and I deserve because we don't and we can't live this way. And this is the greatest scandal of all. This is the most scandalizing thing about Jesus and about Christianity because it's a message that says you and I are so lost we're so hopeless on our own that God had to personally come to earth, not to motivate us a little, not to give us a little bit of help, but to live and die and rise again for us to do everything, absolutely everything necessary to save us. It is offensive. If you understand it, it is a stumbling block because no matter how extraordinary you may feel or how accomplished you've become, the gospel tells you you're completely lost. You're completely powerless. It says you don't have any hope apart from Jesus and what he's done for you. It strips away all our pride, all our self-sufficiency, all our sense of being better or needing to be better than people around us. It says all you need is nothing. All you need is your own sense of how lost and hopeless you are left to yourself. All you need, it says, is to accept and embrace the scandal, to look at the ordinary life of Jesus and let it show you how much you need him. And also to look at it and let it show you how extraordinary the love of God is for ordinary people like you. And that's the invitation. And that's what the people of Nazareth weren't able to do, at least at this point. And we know later on, some of Jesus's family members and, and maybe others who were here in this moment did come to have faith in him. But this is what God invites us to see. The apostle Paul says it this way, 1 Corinthians 1, 23 and 24. He says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power and the wisdom of God. So how do you see it today? This morning, Jesus coming like this, it, the message of the gospel, the message of the cross, is it, a, is it a stumbling block? Is it a scandal for you? Or is it the wisdom and power of God? And well, lastly, what does it look like? What happens when you start to see it this way as the wisdom and power of God? What happens when God gives you the grace to embrace this scandal and then begin to live out of it? Well, you're freed up to be the ordinary person you are. And at the same time, you're invited to be a part of God's far from ordinary mission. 
And this is what we see in the second part of the passage here. After Jesus is rejected and leaves Nazareth, he goes on to other villages to keep teaching the good news. And then what does he do? He sends out the 12 apostles to do the same thing. The very ordinary men he's called to be with him. And remember, like these dudes don't have credentials either. They don't have PhDs in theology. They don't have master's degrees. They weren't fishermen or they were, fish, they were fishermen. They were tax collectors. And according to Acts chapter four, like they were completely uneducated men. In many ways, from a human perspective, they were like Jesus. They had normal, solid jobs and lives, but they, they weren't anybody, anyone would have expected to be on the front lines of the kingdom of God coming to earth. And yet that's just what Jesus calls them to do. Look at verse seven. And he called the 12 and he began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. These ordinary guys. And notice Jesus doesn't tell them, hey, your sermons better be good. Or you better always say the right thing and be able to answer every question that comes your way. No, he, he says, you just go in my authority. You just go in dependence on me. And that's why he tells them to go the way that he does without bread or a bag or money or extra clothes to help them understand that the point isn't about them being special, but it's about him. And you know, this is still the way Jesus works today. I mean, how many times have, have you and me thought, man, I don't know my Bible well enough. I'm not experienced enough. I'm not old enough. I haven't been a Christian long enough. Insert any other place we feel like we're not qualified enough, but God can't use me. He doesn't want to use me. Maybe, maybe someday when I get there, when I'm not so ordinary, but not now. And of course, there's, there's, there's a place for growing, for learning the scriptures better, for learning theology better for acquiring uh, more relational and, and ministry skills. Those are good things to strive for, but how often, and I, and I know this is true for me, even as like a, a professional Christian, <laughs> do we let these doubts and assumptions we have keep us from getting in the game, from joining in on what God's doing, from obeying his call for us to go out without these senses of false security so we can depend on him and do the work, the kingdom work he has specifically for us where we are right now in the moment. This shows us it, it, it's not about that. It's not about us. It's not really about me and how I feel about my being qualified to be used by Jesus, but it's about Jesus. He doesn't expect me or you to be anything other than the ordinary person we are. He only expects us to trust him. And I love how you can see this even going back to when Jesus first called these men back in Mark chapter three. When you look at it, you can see there's, there are two parts to their job description to be his apostles. Mark three verses 14 and 15, Jesus appointed 12 whom he also named apostles so that they might be with him and 
he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. So what's the job description? Number one, to be with him. And then number two, to go out and preach and do ministry. But what's the first thing on that list? What's the first, what's the foundation? To be with him, to trust him, to rest in him, to abide in him and his love, his friendship, his care, his power. And see, this is what made the apostles who they were. It wasn't their credentials. It wasn't these this like extraordinary spiritual resume they had. It's just that they had been with Jesus. And one of my favorite seemingly random verses in all the Bible, I mentioned Acts chapter four, comes from Acts chapter four. After Peter and John have have done these amazing things and they've spoken these amazing words with boldness. And then Luke tells us what the people looking on, the people who did have credentials and who were really qualified, who were kind of extraordinary in terms of in the culture, tells us what they observed, Acts 4, verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, ordinary people, they were astonished. And check this out. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That's what it was was about for them. And you know, that's our job description too. That's what Jesus desires for us, just to be ourselves, the ordinary women and men we are, and to be with him, to be with the Jesus who came to seek and save lost people like us and who now invites us to be part of what he's doing in the world. And in a new year, 2024, the Kobe year, that's a good goal, isn't it? Instead of making it about striving so that everyone will be astonished by us, our credentials and our accomplishments, what if we focused on being known as the people who had been with Jesus? The one who's rescued us through his mightiest work on the cross, the one who wants to be with us just as we are and the one who wants to continue his mighty work in the world and here in our city through ordinary people like you and me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for how you love us. Thank you um, for the scandalous and amazing uh, message uh, that we see embodied uh, in your son, Jesus. Um, And we pray that by the power of your spirit, you'd help us uh, to believe this today, um, that you'd give us the courage to be ourselves and uh, the faith to trust you um, and how you've made us and uh, be open to what you might be calling us to do um, today, this week, and this year, and for the rest of our lives. Um, Thank you again for the good news of the gospel, and uh, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.